Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, may the meditation, sorry, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. I think it's fair to say that mothers are educators. And by that I mean they teach their children all sorts of valuable lessons. And I have several lessons that come to mind here. Mothers teach us about anticipation. Someone shared this in the first hour. When they would say to their children, just wait until your father gets home. Mothers teach us about meeting a challenge in life. For example, mothers saying, what were you thinking? Answer when I talk to you. Don't talk back to me. Things like that. Or a mother who teaches us about genetics, saying things like, you're just like your father. Or a mother that teaches us about our roots. Do you think you were born in a barn? Or mothers that teach us about justice. One day, perhaps you'll have kids, and I hope they'll turn out just like you. And then I'll wait and see what it's, then you'll see what it's like. Anyway, yes, mothers do teach us a lot of things, and I want us to think about, obviously, when we enter the world, we know little to nothing, and all of us need to be taught, need to be taught about so many details and realities of this physical world we live in, but we also need to be taught about the realm of spiritual truth, the realities of spiritual laws that exist in our world, and we need to know about God, and all of us need to be learners, and all of us have opportunities And all of us need to be discipled. Timothy was truly blessed when we read the Scriptures that he, as a child, was taught the Scriptures by his mother, by his grandmother. But even all of the things that he learned as a child growing up, he still had much to learn and much instruction he received, not only from his relatives, but from a person that God brought into his life who discipled him who, like a spiritual father, who taught him many different things about what it means to walk with God, what it means to make a difference in people's lives through the Scriptures. It was his spiritual father, the missionary and church planter and apostle Paul. You see, biological families where Christ is honored are one of the primary God-given contexts to train up children, to teach them about our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in the home, we learn that God indeed is the one who has made us. It is God who has also given himself for us in order to save us. And therefore, we have wonderful truths to impart to our children in our homes, but we also know that in the, the, another sphere in which that teaching takes place is within the church, within the people of God. The family of God is another realm in which we are on mission in which we are, as people who are followers of Christ, being, having been discipled and being discipled to follow Jesus, we are also discipling others around us to also be followers of Jesus as well. And so I've been looking at this text of Scripture this morning, trying to think of a way, how can I preach a sermon on Mother's Day and have some words of encouragement and challenge from others? But there's many people who are here who are not mothers. But all of us, in the reality is that we, all of us can be on mission for Christ. 
All of us have opportunities to gain, I think, insight from this text of Scripture before us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So I hope you have your Bible open or your, your, pat, your uh, tablet is open or you're looking not on anything else but just your phone, you're looking at the Scriptures. As we look at this text, it's a wonderful text, we find several practical insights here on discipling other people. You say, well, what is this idea of discipling people? It's basically being used of God to help encourage and show people through the Scriptures ways in which they can therefore follow Christ and know Him and be used by Him. Um, I want us to look here at this text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I want to consider three practical principles for making disciples in our families and in the family of God. First one is, of course, a mindset. We have to have a mindset for discipling other people. And this mindset is shaped by the idea that the gospel has been entrusted to us as a stewardship. When you hear about the challenges and opportunities of discipling another person, and you think about the, what it means to be given that opportunity to make a difference in somebody's life that will last into eternity, Maybe your reaction is what many of us probably think, and that is, who am I to do such a thing? I feel so unworthy. I feel unqualified to be involved in such a ministry. Let me just say, first of all, that you're not alone in feeling that way. I can't help but think that the person who wrote these words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, that the Apostle Paul, before his conversion... He devoted so much of his time, so much of his energy, so much of the passion of his life was to doing nothing more than intimidating and incarcerating people who followed Jesus. He was not someone that you would think of as being a very good discipler. He was one who was destroying disciples. And from the beginning, the ministry of personal discipleship for the Apostle Paul was anything but easy. He was held in suspicion by believers because of his background and and persecuting so many of them. He was also ridiculed by false apostles who made all sorts of crazy allegations about him and his motives. It's, he's constantly trying to clarify that. He does that even in this text. And he also was facing a lot of opposition from his fellow Jews who couldn't understand and thought it was ridiculous the amount of freedom they had in Christ. So he faced all sorts of hostility, including his experience here in Thessalonica, where he had to run out of town. They said, get out of here. We don't want you here anymore. He'd been on the run from several towns, having been thrown out on his ear. But what motivated Paul was the wonder of all wonders that he had received as a gift from God, the wondrous, priceless treasure of the gospel. If you look at this text, you're going to see that Paul is writing as a person who is absolutely amazed by the gospel. He has been truly humbled that God would richly bless him as a steward of the gospel and the riches of the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul would have never become a disciple of Jesus Christ on mission to make other disciples had he not, by the gospel, been convinced at some point in his life that he himself was a guilty lawbreaker. That he was a person who was full of self-righteousness. And Paul went from having the gospel bring him down to where he saw himself as God saw him 
that he began to, he began to realize that being a, a proud, boastful rule keeper, a person who was a moral, upright person who did so many good things for all the wrong reasons, that he gloried in those at one time, all those attempts now to keep God's laws, he realized that was meant nothing to God. That was offensive to God. And therefore, he was humbled. His mouth was shut before the witness of the law against him that said, you are a guilty, condemned sinner. And it was at that time that Paul learned in the gospel that God's grace is greater than his sin. And that the gospel brought about in Paul a radical change in perspective about his life. Because prior to that time when the gospel changed him, prior to the time of his conversion, Paul thought of himself as, I can save myself. I can do it. And I am doing it. Look at me. He was proud of himself. And now listen to his testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1, when Paul now is boasting, having been humbled by the gospel, and then lifted up by the gospel unto, God, unto Christ. He says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Not righteous people, not good, moral, upright people, but to save sinners. And then he goes on to say, among whom I am the foremost of all. I'm the worst of the band. That's his testimony. And the gospel helped Paul become an effective discipler. He found that the approval that he had received and longed for, that God gave him in the gospel, he found it in the gospel. He finally got the approval he was looking for before God. He knew that his life was not his own at this point. He had been bought at a steep price. Christ had to give himself for him on that cross. And he was now owned by Jesus Christ. And so his discipling ministry was not pursued out of his own neediness. He didn't look at discipling other people as yearning somehow for importance, having people look up to him because, oh, look at how much he knows. It's not because he's trying to gain worth or significance. He did it because he wanted to do what? Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. He wanted to please God. <laughs> he wanted to live for God. Why? Because God had richly blessed him in the gospel. His motive was to honor Christ, to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And therefore, he ministered to the believers there in Thessalonica with the mindset of a, a steward. The gospel had made him complete before God. His motive was not to get something from those that he discipled. As a matter of fact, he longed to give them the riches of the treasures of Christ that he had come to know in the gospel he wanted them to know the same things. Now, if you're a parent here today, your approach at child rearing and the opportunities that come with child rearing, I hope that you're looking at those with gospel motives. Because the proper motive to train up our children is not to impress other people. Gospel motives for training up our children is not to gain respect from other people. It is not to become a person who looks good in the eyes of those that we're trying to impress. Not at all. But all of our attempts, if that is our motive, then all the attempts that we have to coerce our children, to manipulate our children, to somehow control our children, to look good on the outside, and to conform to whatever standards that we think they ought to be conforming to, 
they're all done for the wrong purpose, for the wrong goal. And to have our kids live in that kind of conformity is what? Just so we can live a less stressful life? Just so we can have other people think, well, wow, he's, he, they sure are a nice family. They look good on the outside. That's an empty goal. It will definitely backfire on you. But if you're a disciple maker, the mindset we develop is that we are on mission, on mission with Christ to impact our children, to impact the people beyond our children, if you will, if you're not a father or mother, beyond, impacting the people around you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel we've received is the gospel that we share with other people. And so the first question we have to ask ourselves in terms of our mindset to make a, minister, make a difference in other people's lives to be on mission is, am I a follower of Jesus? That's where it starts, right? We have to, have to say, have I truly ever come admitting my bankruptcy, spiritual bankruptcy before a holy God saying, Lord, I have nothing to offer you to atone for my sins. I therefore place my full weight of confidence and belief in Christ and Christ alone who lived for me, who died for me, and has been raised for my justification. We don't want to be people who are merely telling other people what they want to hear. Paul said that's, he didn't come with that kind of a flattery mindset. I just want to tell you things that you'll be impressed with me or that I'll just be well-liked by you. But what we need is to lovingly correct and chastise our children for their good and for the glory of God. We must confront them in love. We must help them when they fall into sin, help them to see the seriousness of that, help them begin to understand it's not just offending me, it's offending God. And therefore, we must honestly, as people who live before our children, we must help them see we're in the same category that they are in. We are people who admit our own faults. We are people who must confess our own sins to our children to help them understand that we too are in need of a Savior. We're not paragons of virtue. Guess what? Your kids have already figured that out anyway, so you may as well just admit it. As stewards of the gospel, we are not out to impress other people with our knowledge, with our piety. No, we are people who are just common, ordinary, broken people who have been entrusted with a priceless treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This idea of a treasure and having this kind of um, the thought of, of being entrusted with something that really doesn't belong to us, but it's a huge blessing. I was thinking about uh, recently, I read online that there's a construction crew that was in a small town near, near Seville, Spain. As they're digging to lay some pipework, they come across one of these clay pots called an amphora, amphorus. Uh, they are some sort of clay container with handles on the side in which the Romans used these things for storing all kinds of stuff. Everything from olive oil to olives to dates to food to grains to you name it. And they were also used, obviously, to collect human waste and other things around the house. I mean, they were used for many different functions. Clay pots. And in this particular locality where this construction crew was digging, guess what they found? They found 
19 different of these clay pots, amphoras, and they contained uncirculated bronze Roman coins. Not just a few of them, but hundreds of them. And the article that I read was, it didn't give me a number of coins, it was 1,300 pounds of coins. And they think that these coins were a collection of them to be able to pay the Roman soldiers. I don't know what happened as to why they never got paid and how they just sat in the ground, but there they were. They have been found of great value. And if we think about our lives, is the, is the clay pot what has value? No, it was, what was in the pot has value. The same is with you and me. We are not impressive people, but what we have is a priceless treasure. It is Christ in us. It is the gospel in us. It is the privilege of sharing that with people around us. That's the kind of mindset the Apostle Paul had. Second thing I want us to think about this morning is our methodology. How are we going to go about making disciples to be on mission for Christ? And I think the way that we do this is because we think about how God deals with us in the gospel. And one way, of course, that we wise to adopt, uh, to have this kind of ministry mindset with our peers, with our children, with our members of the younger generation, is to say what? Lord, would you give me a genuine affection for the people around me? For example, look at what we hear. Verses 7 and 8 are just great, what Paul writes here. These are such rich, rich statements about the kind of approach in ministry, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Very dear. So letter A then would be one of, the, one of the plays, a God-honoring disciple is somebody who is truly caring for those that God has placed in your life. God-honoring discipling is best done by truly caring for those that God has brought into your life. Paul compares this approach to discipling to a mother, not just any mother, but a nursing mother, a mother with a newborn, an infant, and it is in such this kind of, uh, by and large, you know, we know that mothers are tender-hearted. They are people who genuinely care for their little infant babies. It's a beautiful way because they're committed to meeting the needs of that child, especially an infant who is pretty much helpless. And that includes even sacrificing one of the most valuable commodities in life, a good night's sleep. Mothers give up their sleep for their little crying babies, as they do in many other ways. And I would just say this, if, you're, if you know a new believer, they need a lot of patient care. They really do. They have lots of questions. They, a person who is, they need a discipler who is sensitive to their needs, who is willing to give up some extra time to make sure that they're being cared for and being given the answers that they need in the Bible. And as parents who are on mission from God, we must be sensitive to the needs of our children, not just their wants, hear me say that, not just their desires, which is somewhat uh, pretty often that's where parents aim their, 
their uh, ministry is to, is to make sure their, their wants and desires are satisfied quite often. And all the different ages of their life and growing up. We need to take time to ask good questions of our children. To listen to them. To try to understand the struggles of their hearts. As a matter of fact, Ted Tripp explained so well in the book he wrote, which I strongly and very uh, uh, endorse with great enthusiasm, wishing I had read this book when I was still a young father. Uh, but the wisdom in here is just tremendously biblical wisdom, shepherding a child's heart. It is Ted Tripp who reminds us that what? We're not just focused on our behavior of our kids. We've got to go beyond that. We have to shepherd their hearts. We have to figure out what's going on that motivates their behavior, that leads to them making the choices that they make and address that issue of their lives, not just outward conformity and external behavior. Notice in verse 9, Paul explained that this caring attitude that he had toward the people that God had put in his life is not just imparting the gospel, but his own life. He shared his own life. Out of his concern to see Christ formed in the spiritual children that he had, he shared his life with these people. He spent time with them. He gave up a predictable lifestyle of being comfortable. He gave up a lifestyle of knowing ease, and he rolled up his sleeves. He sought to make an impact on other people for the sake of the gospel. Why does he do that? Because he truly cares about them. He truly cares. And if you truly care, it's going to happen. It'll be a natural choice that you make. Letter B in our outline, I'll just suggest another uh, way of strategy and practical way of doing, putting this into practice is, um, in our discipling approach is to do so with diligence. Diligence. Look at verse 9. Paul says, for you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any one of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul reviews the fact that he, while there, worked hard among them, that he might not be a burden to them, but that he did so to show that he was definitely trying to make a difference in laboring to the point of exhaustion among them. He's not lazy. He's not trying to take advantage of them. And so the principle we take away from this is what? Discipling is hard work. Discipling is challenging, difficult, sometimes exhausting work. Think about Jesus. He spent three years nonstop training and teaching his followers. And he taught them some lessons over and over again. It is Jesus who corrects them. How many times did he correct them about their false and incorrect view of the Messiah, the role of the Messiah will play? He's like, nope, that's not it. You got to remember, it's this way. And they're like, nope, that's not right. It's got to be this way. And no, no, I'm going to come back and teach that lesson again. And so he constantly reviews that. And then what does he do? He's challenging them repeatedly about what greatness in the kingdom looks like. Because here they are having little you know, arguments about who's going to be the greatest, who's going to sit on his right hand, who's going to have the position of honor in the kingdom, and they're all thinking about where they're going to... Jesus is like, you don't understand what greatness means in the kingdom. He's teaching and teaching the same lessons over and over again. Similarly, discipling our children is what? Demanding, wearisome, 
something we do repeatedly all over and over and over, teaching the same lessons. And it's possible, if we're not careful, that we might become weary in well-doing. The Bible, of course, cautions us about this. And may I just say, one of the reasons I think some parents are weary when it comes to discipling their kids is sometimes we do too much for our children. I think it's important that children understand they are people who contribute to the family, the family unit, that they do something for us as a family, not just individuals. It's all about them. It's about the fact that they do chores, that they help around the house. I don't know if people still do that in their houses anymore, but it's a good trainer. It's a good discipling technique. It's what Jesus encouraged them to do. Learn to serve. That's where you find true greatness is. And let's be honest, when it comes to addressing a willfulness in our children, and addressing a defiant attitude in our children, it's never easy. Never. And yet, as we do so lovingly correcting our children, it is an inconvenience. There's no question. When you're busy and you got things going on, you got deadlines, you're trying to get your kids here, you're trying to go there, you're trying to do this, you got uh, fixed dinner. They come at inconvenient moments when we have a ministry to sit down with our children and help them understand the seriousness of their willful hearts, their defiant hearts, a heart that is rebelling against God. But these are times in which we can bring these things to bear with our children to help them understand the bigger picture of life. And sometimes we want to come home after a long day work. We want to put our feet up. We want to chill out. We want to just get our little screens out. We want to just play a game or do something. It's not that way, my friends. Discipleship is demanding. Jesus didn't give up on his disciples. His diligence, his perseverance in rescuing those he came to save is an incentive for all of us not to give up. Thank God he didn't give up on us. And some of you who are adults and you've seen your children as they've come up through the years and they are now out on their own and you're still concerned about your adult children, your young adult children, you're concerned that they still are not making their way onto that path of wisdom, they're still walking in the path of a fool, may I say, don't give up on your kids. It's still appropriate to speak to them in a way that's lovingly and respectful, reminding them that you care about them, reminding them that God's ways have great benefit to them. There's much else I could say there, but let's move on to another aspect of the methodology of discipling and a powerful influence on other people, and that is to have a godly example. A godly example. Look at verse 10. Paul says, You are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. I don't know if you write in your Bible, but there's three good words to underline in that text. To think about what it is to live before someone devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly. I wonder if uh, you have in your home a reputation for being a person who is late. Do you have a, a reputation in your home for being a person who is impatient, as being dishonest, a vulgar person? Do you have a, a reputation for being ungrateful or rude? Guess what? Your kids are watching. They're learning. They're following. They can't help it. Here's a greater question is, do they ever hear you admitting that you're wrong? 
Do they ever hear you admitting that you've sinned? Do they ever hear you admitting that they've uh, sinned against their kids and they're asking for forgiveness? Children will learn from that example. They can't help it. They eventually will imitate what they see in their parents' words and works. And Paul said to those who, that he sought to disciple, what does he say to them? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, follow my example as I follow Christ. He knows that the power of example is truly something that will make an impact on other people's lives. And so if you're discipling a younger believer, don't just talk about prayer with them, pray with them. Lead them in prayer. Help them understand how you approach God in prayer. Let them hear you praying and uh, lead them through your own time of spending time in the Word. Show them what you do in your quiet time. Help them to see and understand that as you read the Word. Read it aloud with them. Admit your own struggles. Admit your own sins with the person you're discipling. Help them understand they need your prayer. They need the prayers of this other person as well. Invite that person you're discipling to pray for you and with you. I'd like to make one other suggestion in terms of methodology. It goes a long way to promote gospel discipleship in your family or in the family of God, and that's this. Verse 11. Affirmation. Affirmation. He says, You know how we were ex exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. I cannot tell you the power of an encouraging word. A word that speaks affirmation and encouragement is powerful. And too often our children, or too often the person we're discipling, hears from us only words of correction, focused only on bad behavior. All too rarely they hear us using our words to build them up, to commend them, using our words to remind them of gospel promises, using our words to offer loving encouragement. It goes a long way to build up hope and perseverance in those that we are trying to disciple. Part of a loving encouragement is to help disciples understand that the Christian life is not just merely a matter of putting off bad habits. It's also a matter of what? Having biblical exhortations to put on new habits, new patterns of living. And therefore, we all need to hear words of a wise spiritual father imploring us to do what? To walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls us into his own kingdom and glory. I wonder, as it could be said by your kids or the people you disciple, are your words seasoned with grace? Do you know how to speak to someone who has blown it and you can speak to them in a way which you don't destroy them and knock them down till they feel like there's no hope for them? When someone has dropped the ball in a big way, it's made your life difficult, who's really, in a sense, offended you in a major way, are you able to respond with grace to that person? Are our comments to our kids couched in such a way to help them see why living for Jesus is reasonable and rewarding? And at this point, and I, as I thought about this idea of words of encouragement and affirmation, I have to say to myself, here's a huge parenthetical thought here that's an assumption going on here that I don't think we need to assume is going on in our world anymore. And that is what? This assumes that you're talking to your kids. This assumes that you're not looking at your phone all day. 
or your kid is not looking at their phone all day and all night. There needs to be an exchange and a conversation in which we are talking and listening to each other. And I'm convinced that's a real issue in our young families and in many of us in our face-paced world with technology. And I would just say this, a couple of things I've read about I thought were quite interesting is to carve out time in which technology is not that which disturbs or prevents significant communication from happening. For example, take a tech timeout in your home on a regular basis. Certain hours of the day would be a good time to say, okay, everybody put your technology away. You could put it in a box. You could put it in a designated place, but put the, put the phone away, put the tablet away, put the computer away long enough that you can, let's say there's, there's moments where we're going to now, what? You have my full attention. I read of some product that this lady was so excited about. She said, there's this little wood box that you slide open the top, you put your cell phone in, and you close it in the top of it that says, be present. In other words, I'm here, I'm present with you, I'm listening, I'm engaged. I'm not sitting here distracted about what's going on on Facebook or, uh, what do you call it, uh, um, Pinterest or whatever. Snapchat. The point is, we don't want to email or text our kids. There needs to be conversation and listening and having eye-to-eye -eye contact. Powerful, powerful time that we're missing out in our world. Okay, we'll 30 very quickly here. Just a one point I have to make this because I'm going to jump down to chapter 3 to make this point. But our mainstay for discipling other people is rooted in our reliance upon what? Our reliance on God and our reliance on the Word of God which does what we cannot do. You see, discipling means to be a learner, and there's nothing more essential to being a disciple than to know God. And how do we know God? We gain that knowledge in the Word of God. Conversion, spiritual growth, sanctification will never take place until the Word of God is applied to the heart of a disciple. The Word of God, look at verse 13 of chapter 2. The Word of God, last phrase there, last part of that verse, performs its work in those who believe. It's the Word of God that is at work in really effectively making disciples as people share the Word and talk about the Word. And so it's the Word of God is able to make a follower of Christ properly equipped for living for Christ. This is why it's always important if you're trying to influence someone to be a follower of Jesus and what it means to be on mission is to talk about the Scriptures. Read the Scriptures with them. Memorize the Scriptures with them. Teach the Scriptures to them. Because growth toward maturity in Christ will not take place unless we are ingesting and digesting the Word of God. And so Paul witnessed the true conversion and the spiritual fruit of holy living, the good works in those brethren there in Thessalonica. Why? Verse 13, because they received the word that he brought them, not as the word of man, but the word of God. The word of God really is powerful. That's what changes lives. And so therefore, we must be people of the word and we must be sharing the word with those around us. That's why knowing the scriptures and memorizing them, or at least being familiar with, script, with the scriptures enough to know, show it to someone, is that you can include that in your conversation and say, well, you know, that reminds me of this verse. These are powerful ways to see people's lives changed.
Because then it's not just you talking, it's God talking to them. Big difference. Big difference. And lastly, and this is in chapter 3, sorry I got ahead of myself, but uh, there is no lasting gospel impact that will be made on our children or those we're striving to disciple apart from prayer. Apart from prayer. The Apostle Paul, verses, chapter 3, verse 9, let me just quickly read this. What thanks can we render to God? Chapter, first, chapter 3, verse 9 of, of Thessalonians. What, what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? We, as night and day, we keep praying most earnestly that we may be able to, that we may see your face, that may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. What's he doing there? He's telling them about the fact he does pray for them, and then he's doing what? And I'm telling you what I'm praying, and I'm going to pray for you right now. The effect of God's word upon these lives that were truly changed by the gospel is a result of what Paul had invested as the ministry of prayer. We can adopt biblical strategies. We can adopt biblical methods. We can have a biblical mindset, point number one, two, and three in this crazy outline. But that's not going to guarantee anybody's hearts or lives ever changing. Only God can change a heart. Only God can can impart new life. Only God can give new desires. Only God who can give hunger and thirst for righteousness. Therefore, seek God as we're on mission for him and using the word to make a difference in other people's lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are able to use the most unlikely of us. For some of us, Lord, we feel as though we have nothing to offer other people. But Lord, according to your word, if we're a true believer, we've been entrusted with the gospel. We have a rich treasure that's been entrusted to us. Help us, Lord, to live like stewards and to impart that rich treasure to those around us. Give us, Lord, a encouraged heart to be able to see people as you see them. Help us, Lord, to not give up on people. Help us, Lord, to realize that discipling is something that is demanding, but it also is something that you are able to give us the grace. We thank you, Lord, for those who have invested in us and discipled us to where we are today. And Lord, help us, we pray, to, to be uh, those who know your word, who share your word, and who are praying for people that the word of God will have a mighty impact upon them and to trust you, Lord, to do mighty things among us, that we might see people coming to Christ, that we might see people taking seriously what it means to follow Jesus, and that we might see people who truly are grounded and reach maturity in Christ because they have had people around them enough who love them, who are affectionate for them, who cared enough about them to share Christ with them and to pray for them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.